When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey. Hey, hey, man. Friends, I'm a little bit ill. So you might hear that I've got a little bit of a hoarse voice. It just makes you sound sexy. Does it, is it good for radio? Yeah. It's bad for people around me uh, and for yeah. my own health, but for radio, it's great. Ooh. So I'm, I'm pretty happy just that we're putting out this quality product that we have, I've got a cool voice on. Yeah. Um, and any coughing, spluttering, sneezing, any other disgusting sounds I may make over the course of the next hour or so, they will be edited out. Or enhanced. I don't know. It's really up to you what you want to do with them. Or you can cover them up with like bird noises, like uh, like their like their swears, their swears or something. Sure, I can do that. Um, what have you been uh, watching lately? So we discussed this film in the past when it was sort of in production. Now we have a trailer. Yesterday, written by Richard Curtis, directed by Danny Boyle. The premise of which is this guy is a sort of struggling wannabe musician, gets hit one is on his bike wakes up and the world has forgotten the beatles not only that they don't even exist and so when he plays beatles songs they're like what it's incredible and he's quickly becomes the most successful pop star in the world by basically just playing beatles songs everyone's like forgotten know, or everyone's doesn't... amazed yeah uh, by this and also seems that lily james is playing you know your standard richard curtis slightly pervy wank fantasy girl who I don't know. She's got Towsley hair, isn't she? And she wears like a denim jacket. And she's cute and posh. She's cute and posh. What happened? Oh. Electricity flicked off all over the world. Cheese! <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, Ellie bought you a present. All my troubles seem wow. so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe. Why did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? John, Paul, George and Ringo, the Beatles. No. Stop it. Yesterday. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. Well, it's not Coldplay. It's not Fix You. Do you genuinely not know who the Beatles are? Genuinely. Then I'm in a really, really, really complicated situation. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Sorry, I'm just listening to Jack's new song. What's this one called? Uh, leave it be. Let it be. Well, rock on, Jack. Oh, yeah. Tell you something. <laughs> um... I've got a lot of questions that I think the film needs to answer. 
Okay. So we've, written, we've written a few down. Oh, great. Okay. So are there still Linda McCartney sausages or any of her delicious foods available? If, if Mac is gone, he like helped popularize vegetarianism. Yeah. But, like his name, you know, wings doesn't exist, right? So the whole celebrity nature of Linda McCartney's gone. Do we know that wings doesn't exist? Okay. That's another question. Who narrates Thomas the Tank Engine? Yeah. That's is it a, still Ringo Starr? That's a good question. Because he wouldn't be famous. What are the vultures in the Jungle Book modeled on? <laughs> if the Beatles don't exist. Yeah. Who did the theme tune to Live and Let Die? That's a good question. Did the Manson killings still happen? Because Charles Manson wouldn't have been able to listen to the White Album and deduce there was a race war coming. Yeah. So is he just like, fine, there was no Manson killings, Sharon Tate's alive, Polanski never raped that kid you know that has a huge ramification for me it's like a sort of man in the high castle style premise but the trailer seems to be ignoring all of that it's ignoring all the interesting stuff yeah what did you make of the trailer did you fill you with joy it was like the bloody opening 2012 ceremony wasn't it just like shots of crowds cheering and a sense of unity and anthemic just soundscapes and it'll end with hey jude and everything's gonna be fine yeah i mean it seems like a kind of uh uh, running on fumes effort to keep everyone's spirits up during the apocalypse or something, <laughs> the release of this movie you know yeah. it's got a whiff of desperation about it what if we all just sit around the campfire in some sense and sing Beatles songs together like will that stave off this sense of uh, impending chaos and doom um Could you head out of the sands curtis and Boyle? <laughs> make a real fucking <laughs> a real film fucking about movie. well what's going on um yeah uh i don't know i, I basically don't really understand the premise i don't understand what the point of it is is it a is is there some satirical idea of it what is what is it for you know what i mean like it's obviously any any kind of alternative future or like alternate timeline thing has got to have it's got to be saying something you know like what would life be like without this i mean it kind of reminds me a bit of the invention of lying yeah yeah which obviously does have something to say about religion or whatever even yeah. in the most obnoxious and stupid way possible. Absolutely. But it's got a message, you know. So what's the message of this movie? I have no idea. But like, but yeah, I mean, it raises a bunch of uh, interesting questions. I mean, as well, something else that I think you've mentioned before is like, what would music even sound like? I mean, the Beatles obviously are yeah, highly, probably the most influential band of all time. So what would music be like without them? And And also, like, is it even true that, if you release their songs now, they'd all be mega hits. I mean, they'd sound old-fashioned. Like, popular music is very related to the times in which it's in. Do you think you know? it should be a... The Beatles is a 60s band. Like, what is it? What what does it mean to release these songs now? Like, I understand that they're very famous and timeless and stuff like that. But if you just came out... If some modern band came out with a song that sounded exactly like um, I Want to Hold Your Hand, it would sound... Like, kind of quaint, quaint and dorky. Yeah, it wouldn't like become the a lemon no- twigs. They're not the biggest band in the world. Yeah, but even even a band like that, even like bands that do sixty sounding things, it, you know, they're doing it in a kind of cool way. Or yeah. just you know, there's there's a pose to it. No, it's not like the super earnestness of um of like the early Beatles stuff. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're obviously tied to the time in which they came from. So you can't just like transplant their songs now and imagine that they'd like be global hits. It'd be weird. I do think it's very on brand for Richard Curtis in that all his movies are a bit of a sort of wish fulfillment project. Like, I don't like Notting Hill at all, but the premise I think is kind of brilliant because everyone secretly thinks the only reason I'm not with Emma Stone or 
Charlize Theron or whatever. So I just haven't met her. But if I bumped into her, she'd obviously instantly fall in love with me. I think that's quite a sort of common fantasy. And this one is like, you know, it'd be great if I wrote all the Beatles songs. And was, you know what I mean? It's just like a daydream he's had. But he's Richard Curtis, so he can just make it into a film directed by Danny Boyle. You know, he just lives out his fantasies in real life. Yeah, absolutely. All power to him. Yeah. I also think the premise would have been better if he had no musical talent. So he had to learn how to play the guitar, learn how to play the piano in order to reconstruct the songs, you know? He, yeah. he can't sing either, so he can't really, like, do the tunes properly. He just kind of knows how they go, and then he's got to kind of... I think I think maybe you can end up with a, um, uh, a Salieri uh, sort of Mozart-type thing where um, he is, like... He just doesn't have the ability to properly communicate it. You know, Mozart's ill on Amadeus, but maybe he's just musically illiterate. So he has to sort of go to someone and, like, explain how, you know how the songs should be performed. Exactly. This is why the movie I Am Legend sucks, because he's like a sort of hench rocket scientist. It's like, the stakes would be high if the guy has to save mankind as just some average guy. He's like, I don't have the skill set to do this. Yeah. But they went the other route. Then The Martian would have been so much better if he'd just been like... Just some guy. Just some guy. Oh, God, this is beyond me. (laughs) I wish I'd I'd been the botanist. (laughs) Yeah. So I know what to do with these oh, potatoes to survive. I can't the shit out of this. I can't slice the shit out of this. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely going to die here. <laughs> yeah, oh, always man. make your heroes not good at the thing which the whole movie revolves around so we can watch them struggle to accomplish it. Yeah. Come on, guys. Fucking hell. Yeah, so I don't think this film will be good and it looks uh, very annoying, but it is fun to talk about. So thank you, Richard. Thank you, Danny. It's like a... Yeah. Thank you, John Paul and Jordan Ringo. Looks like a film for sort of centrists. It's a this is a people's vote movie. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. This is an FBP. <laughs> this is an FBPE <laughs> film. <laughs> to the back teeth. Um, um, what do we do on this podcast, Danny? I'll tell you what we do on this podcast. We've got a run down here, a little refresher. So, film chat. It's about a safe cracker called Sam Foster. That's you. And you're released after spending 12 years in prison. And you seek repayment from refusing to rat out your boss, Ivan Fontaine. You, then you reunite with your best friend, Danny Moran. That's me. And we travel to Fontaine's villa in the French countryside. You flirt with Fontaine's Romanian girlfriend, Paulina. You bet I do. And you become angry that you've spent 12 years in jail for Fontaine. And you begin to mock Fontaine... And Fontaine storms out, and but then later at dinner you apologise, and Fontaine gives you seven hundred fifty thousand pounds as recompense. That's nice. Uh, that night you spend, we spend the night partying with two girls, one of whom Melody strikes up a conversation with you. That's important. And then uh, <laughs> afterwards, we go driving in Fontaine's car. The car crashes into another car, one unconscious. You have a vision that Paulina asks you for the money that you've been given. You wake up resuscitated by Melody and you find Fontaine is dead. He's been impaled by a car fender. Oh my god. Uh, Melody tells Sam that because he saved her life, because you saved Melody's life, yep. you shall gain good luck when you least expect it. Hmm. So you and me head back to the mansion and we find Paulina's taking your money. And we see her like drive from the car and you run out in front of the road and you're like, Paulina, what are you doing? And she says, do I look like a woman who wants to be poor and drives away? So what I would be saying, this was a adaptation of the opening of Dom Hemingway. That fantastic film in which I star. Small role. 
yeah. small but crucial not, role. And in, not in the product Asian version, but in the real one. In the real one. And instead, this is just a podcast we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me, a cheeky, bloody geezer with an exquisite cock. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Foster. Thanks, Danny. On this episode, Danny will be giving us his take on the Oscar-nominated Can You Ever Forgive Me? Starring Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant in which the latter plays yet another with nail and eye-esque charming louche drunkard. Some critics are calling the typecasting of Grant unforgivable. Danny, can you ever forgive uh, the people for typecasting uh, Richard E. Grant? No, no, I can't. Okay. Meanwhile, I will be reviewing another pair of Netflix films, uh, which I did not have to leave the house to see, meaning they are automatically at least three stars. First up, Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird, not to be confused with Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds, which stars Andre Holland as a sports agent who launches a solo music career in 2010, having left Oasis the year before. Oh, I've just confused uh, the, the film High Flying Bird with Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. It's actually about the NBA and all the money and big business behind basketball. It was pretty good, but it would have benefited from Liam's vocals, according to the enemy. I'll also be reviewing the art world satire horror oddity Velvet Buzzsaw, directed by Dan Gilroy, notable for its selection of wacky painting-related murders, brightly coloured art douchebag costumes, and a satisfyingly all-in performance from Jake Gyllenhaal. It's basically my whole review, but I'll be spinning that out into 10 or 15 long, long minutes later on. All that should leave just enough time for me to shake up and modernise the podcast. I'll be announcing a new host for Film Chat comedian kevin hart i'll be receiving a massive social media backlash and rowing back on that decision and then i'll be announcing that we'll be abolishing the news section and replacing it with more background chatter about us setting up the mics and stuff then i'll be receiving a massive social media backlash for that and rowing back on that decision and then i'll be announcing that two reviews per week will take place entirely during the 30 second adverts on acast and i'll be receiving a massive social media backlash and rowing back on that decision. And I think after all that, you know, change is hard. Sometimes decisions are unpopular, but it's just really important that, you know. Absolutely. You've got to do some of things. Course. And some people won't like it, but you just got to stick to it. Absolutely. So here's to uh, the next phase of Film Chat's life, taking it into uh, the next decade, I assume. Danny and I, we hang out also when we're not recording the podcast, and we watched the BAFTAs together. We did. At our friend Dougal's house. Thank Dan you. was there as well. And Dan was there. Thank you to all of those guys. <laughs> um, I missed the beginning of this, so I missed most of Joanna Lumley's kind of quips. Well, you missed the tightest five minutes of comedy I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Honestly... You are such a clever and talented bunch, and if it was up to me, you'd all get an award. 
which is presumably why it's not up to me. But let's see which brave souls have battled through the English weather in a chauffeur-driven limousine to be here this evening. Bradley Cooper is here. Bradley? He has been nominated for five categories, which makes him a multi-talented genius, though it does also probably mean that he needs to learn how to delegate. And from the favourite, Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weisser here. With their director, Yorgos Lanthimos. It was a truly great film and such mesmerising performances. And actually, what a masterstroke to have called it the favourite. Next year, no doubt, there'll be a film called And the BAFTA Goes To. And star of Stan and Ollie, Steve Coogan is here. He was utterly amazing as Stan Laurel, wasn't he? And I'm also indebted to him for helping me on with my Queen Anne outfit earlier. Thank you, Steve. That's another fine dress you got me into. Uh, I was I was pretty happy about it actually. You're probably wondering why you like you walked in and we were all like literally on the floor rolling about, clutching our sides. <laughs> I d- I did wonder, yeah. Because we've seen Lums red in the face, tears streaming down your eyes. Yeah, struggling to breathe. Yeah. Um. So so I missed that, and actually there wasn't that many. I mean, perhaps they'd all been edited down. Is it possible that her her many gags in the uh, presenting segment of the evening have been edited out quite possibly because it's only a two-hour edited broadcast that's the sort of funny thing about like a sort of post-twitter baftas it's like come watch the baftas like it's all been announced on twitter like an hour beforehand yeah and the when you watch it in a two-hour version it's very business-like yeah it's just like bang 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 let's get let's get this done you know we need to we got a lot of awards here to give out we got to move on um so the big winners from the evening were the favorite and roma uh, the favourite got Outstanding British Film, Roma won uh, Best Film and uh, Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, and be- Best Director, Best Foreign Language Director, <laughs> Best Cinematography, Best, best Foreign Language best Cinematography. Best Cinematography. Yeah. Um, so b- between them, they, uh, they, they cleared up uh, most of the stuff. Uh, favourite got Best Costume Design, for example, um, Best Actress for Olivia Coleman. I think that was, that was the sort of main story of the evening. Yeah, I think, well, you know, it was, it was, I guess that's, it was the, uh, it was the favourite song going, favorite. going into the ceremony because any British film always has a sort of home advantage. I was kind of disappointed that didn't extend to Richie Grant. I was kind of hoping he would get uh, the best supporting actor, but it went to Mahersha Ali, purely because I think his acceptance speech would just be really nice. He is like a social media genius, I think. He's running the, I don't think he's even trying to run a campaign, but just his, his uh, enthusiasm He's so unjaded and so delighted to be part of the awards conversation that he's just hard to resist. Yeah. And Mahershala Ali is obviously a great actor and his performance in Green Book is really good, but you're just not delivering the same kind of Instagram posts that Richard E. Grant is. And for that reason, I hope you never win any awards. And uh, Until you can up your game. Up your game. Was there anything else that uh, struck you by the evening in terms of uh, where the awards went? Any big surprises? You know what I feel is a bit unfortunate is like Emma Stone's like the sort of politics of the favorite like all the favorite speeches it's like the same speech we're talking about how it's about three strong women and such a great movie that has these three central female roles but i just feel like emma stone is the lead in that movie and yeah the other two are supporting and she's basically had to sort of like take the bullet for the because uh, you've got one politics. you got one lead and you got one supporting so, yeah so yeah. it's like we give coleman the lead even though she's not the lead 
but she's the queen, so I don't know. And Rachel Vise thus gets the best supporting nods with her. Well, she does the most uh, kind of acting, I guess, Olivia yeah. Coleman. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a three-hander, really. And you're, but you're kind of following the story through Emma Stone's eyes. It's kind of like her attempts to rise in the court of uh, Queen Anne. That's like the central narrative thrust of the movie. So yeah, I think sort of on paper, she seems like she has the strongest ca- uh, claim to be the lead actress. Oh, thank you so much. It's really big. <laughs> um, I don't. I do. I do know what to say. I've actually written something down. I do know. Um, um, to my fellow nominees, to be in the same company as you is such an extraordinary honour. I think you're all, the work you all did was so beautiful. Um, very shaky, sorry. Um, can't read it either. Uh, um, all the producers, Obs, um, Fox and Elements and, and everyone therein. Uh, and um, well, Nadia and Sandy and all of your teams. Hi. We're having an amazing night, aren't we? We're going to get so pissed later. Um, <laughs> Do you buy Olivia Coleman's? Is she being sincere or is she doing a bit of a sort of Hugh Grant's, oh, I'm so befuddledness? Well, I, I was wondering after bit. the Globes when everyone praised that speech and then the, the BAFTAs one did have a bit of a similar kind of thing to it. It was oh, like, yeah. you should have been more ready this time, Olivia. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you should have had this. You should have. It should be a slick thing now. I don't want to be. You should be going up and being bish bash bosh. Not, 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 you know, dropping your. (laughs) Whatever the hell that was. Yeah. Not dropping your bit of paper and, you know, not really sure what you're doing and all that kinds of thing. I think it should have. She should have seemed like a very slick kind of uh, business like character. Her performance of a woman not, you know, prepared to give an acceptance speech is greater than her performance in The Favourite. Oh gosh, well in the favorite she is partly like there's a bit where she can't give a speech. Yeah, so I think maybe she's just drawing on her experience from that movie Very and, and now now taking it into her awards um uh, show run. I guess we'll see at the Oscars if there's another thing where Olivia Coleman goes up on the podium and she's like, oh gosh, oh I'm so sorry, oh I don't have anything to say. Oh dear, what 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 a lovely auntie. Don't you all look nice? Oh wow, you know that kind of thing. I'm going to be rolling my eyes. Yeah. After three sort of crikeys, I'm going to be tweeting very <laughs> angrily about, about Col- hashtag Coleman fraud. <laughs> well, I think we've successfully put Coleman on notice there. <laughs> <laughs> you're, on, you're on notice, Coleman. All right. You are on notice. And we'll be watching you on Oscar night. And if you do not deliver... A one hundred percent smooth and uninterrupted speech in which you just just thank everyone nicely and smile and don't make any of your funny quote unquote uh, spontaneous jokes. Um. Uh. Then you know. Then we'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a turn. <laughs> Big takeaway from the bastards is like, we got your eye on. We've got our eye on Olivia Coleman. Coleman. Yeah. You got your fucking eye on you. On to far more important matters. Yeah, let's have some real news. So, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the review of Aquaman or if I may have cut it, which was a mistake, but moving <laughs> <on> to... <laughs> the thing I enjoyed the most about the film yeah. was the setting of the trench. <laughs> You know, the sort of 
It's like a fictional trench, like the sort of abyss-like place where there's a lot of different fish and monsters. Isn't it the Marianas Trench? Oh, it might be that. It might be the actual Mariana Trench. I think we're looking at a real trench here. <laughs> a real trench. But the contents like, of the trench are was, definitely fantastical. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, there's a lot of potential here that hasn't quite been tapped by the movie because they got to set up the character and stuff. But it's a shame because I feel they left a lot of stuff on the table regarding the trench. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thrilled to hear that Warner Brothers are making a spin-off film from Aquaman called The Trench. There's going to be a horror film set in The Trench and it's going to be produced by James Wan, the director of Aquaman. They've hired uh, newcomers Noah Gardner and Aidan Fitzgerald to write the spin-off and everything, should everything go smoothly, we're looking at a 2021 release. They picked up two random guys, total newcomers, they just liked the movie and they wrote in about the trench. I know we're always like discussing these random projects which feel like names. <laughs> but what we like most about this is that following like Wonder Woman and Aquaman was a big hit, uh, at least commercially. And I think critically everyone thought it was just kind of wacky fun. Yeah. It's like, and Ben Affleck's leaving Batman. It's like, oh, oh the DC, you know, Warner Brothers guy finally saw settling down as some sort of cohesive plan. It was obviously not. Just like whoever the fucking coked up maniac who's in charge of this stuff. And some, for some reasons, like the next logical step after Wonder Woman 1984 and the new Batman movie is a movie set in a horror film. A, a key demographic of, you know, eight year olds or whatever. Yeah. A horror movie set in the Aquaman Trench. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So it's. A- it's a superhero extended universe horror movie. Yeah. I mean, that in and itself is quite a strange move, isn't it? Suggests like an older audience. Well, it's like, do you want to see a horror film set on like an As- on Asgard or something? What if the kids are, be imagine it, all but... those poor kids who loved Aquaman and they're just begging their parents to let them go see the trench and yeah, they can't. Exactly. They want to return to the trench, the magical world of the trench, and but they're not. They're not. They're not old enough to go in there. <laughs> is it because James Wan has horror? credentials yeah. yeah i don't know i guess i mean it's a horror movie and there's going to be some monsters and it's set at sea i can see that working i would say that one thing aquaman did not lack for was like fish characters there was a lot of fish there was a lot <laughs> a lot of fish and especially in like you know the battle scenes insane levels of fish and like different kinds as well like the climax of it has a bit of a battle of the five armies from the hobbit movie feel uh, just loads of different fish nations and stuff all duking it out. Yeah. So maybe they can, you know, a lot of those fish designs will presumably, you know, someone poured a lot of love and effort into them. They've already rendered out the files, you know. It'd exactly. Be a shame not to use them again. Just put, pop them in the trench. <laughs> like we saw them on the surface of the sea. I mean, sorry, on the, you know, the, bo- the seabed. Yeah, yeah, but the trench goes down below that. Yeah, yeah. So just sweep a few of them into the trench. <laughs> Just see what happens. I think like I think that could be interesting. I want to see some of this crab the crab guys in the trench. I can't wait. Maybe we can follow Brian Breast Blessed's Crab King character in the spin-off. <laughs> yeah. As he's exiled into the trench and uh we've got to see how he deals with life down there. That he's never been in the trench before. In all his years. Yeah. I'm not sure that'd be that scary though. <laughs> <laughs> Why? 
because he's a very commanding guy. I can't imagine Brian Blessed being. But that's what's so scary is that when you see his authority, it isn't is worthless. He's like a king. He's like a King Lear character. You know, he seems <laughs> he seems very commanding at the start, but then uh, he quickly is sent into the wilderness and has to contend with the elements and. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> and then he and then he has he has no authority and he's actually just a vulnerable old man. So your pitch is like basically King Lit, but instead of King Lit like a crab a crab king. Yeah. He's been sent into the Marina Trench. Um in the genre of a horror. Yes. That's yes, absolutely. You've sold one ticket here. Excellent. That's all I, well I hope that it's that. I think they're missing a trick if it's not like that. I'm honestly looking forward to the trench more than uh, anything except the cyborg movie at this point. Looks like Sam's got a film to review, he's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you, that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much, and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Flying Bird. It's a new film from Steven Soderbergh, who most recently made Logan Lucky, which did not do very well at the box office, right? But was no. quite good. And he has released this movie directly onto Netflix. It's not one of uh, Netflix's things that they've taken up, which is weird. I, I always feel a bit like these things are just like vanishing into the ether. But perhaps they also vanish into the ether when they get released into cinemas and nobody goes to see them. So, I don't know. Perhaps it just has more longevity because it will always be on Netflix. Yeah, I guess so. But, I don't know, perhaps less fanfare or something, which feels like a shame. It's uh, written by Terrell Alvin McCraney, whose um, play was the um, inspiration for the movie Moonlight. Um, and it stars Andre Holland, who uh, was in Moonlight, is probably best known for his role in that, and also previously worked with Steven Soderbergh on the drama uh, the Nick with Clive Owen, um, and it dramatizes the NBA lockout in 2011, or is kind of based on it, um, although it's not like a directly historical film. And I don't really understand what this is because I don't know that much about the world of American basketball. But essentially, Andre Holland plays this guy called Ray, who's a sports agent who represents players, and they are negotiating with the NBA for um, some kind of terms around like television rights or some kind of playing rights for the start of the, of, the, of the basketballing season and the negotiations break down and it results in the beginning of the season being kind of cancelled and, and there are no ability like the players can't sign contracts with teams or something like that and it's all kind of extended I think that is what is going on right but it's not really a film that bothers to you explain this to you because i think it assumes that it's for an american audience and gotcha. you basically follow it so from a kind of idiot's uh, perspective a foreign a foreigner who doesn't no idea what's happening in the world of basketball it's mainly about um his efforts to keep his own position going uh, as an agent um and sort of wrangle his way through these various business deals and it kind of explores the money and the business 
behind basketball the game behind the game as they as they refer to it and uh, it also stars zazie beats he probably recognizes domino in deadpool 2 as his assistant um and various various familiar faces pop up throughout the movie zachary quinto's in it um as his sort of direct like reports line manager carl mclaughlin as a uh yeah who's a cool cool guy to see pop up he's in it as an nba executive and sonia sohn who uh, is in the wire oh yeah kima kima from the wire exactly um who's another one of these like suits doing the deals yeah here's a clip you want to get back on the court and that's your agent i want to get you there but we are in a lockout there are no actual games to watch you think these fools these rich white dudes gonna let these sexiest sport fall by the wayside this team's my family i need us to be one big family again football is fun but it don't sell sneakers to move merch and inspire rap lyrics they need your services the nba wanted control of a game that we played we played better they invented a game on top of a game see a whole infrastructure that put the control back in the hands of those behind the ball what you gonna do but i'm about to pull up a chair so i think that my uh limited technical knowledge here and possibly also the fact that i watched this during a week of being quite ill means that i will not have the most uh, sophisticated or in-depth take on this because meant that i hated it meant that i hated it <laughs> I didn't watch but it's actually brilliant and i hated that as well so yeah but I, I, I rather enjoyed it. The sort of genre of movie that it reminded me most is, I guess what you describe as like the Sorkin, the world of Sorkin films, you know? Walking, talking. There's walking, there's talking, there's quips. There's gotcha. a lot of guys who are firing off things at each other all the time. Brilliant. The script is very sharp, you know? People making s- sharp comments at each other a lot. Um, but it is one billion times less annoying than, uh, than the Aaron Sorkin version. But it's, because it's the NBA and Andre Holland's the lead, it's rare that you see a walkie-talkie movie which isn't a bunch of white guys in suits. Is there more black people in this than a yeah? Just by the nature of its yeah, format? I think that's I think that's very true. I mean, one of the things that the movie explores is a guy who loves the sport of basketball but has always been on the business side of it rather than on the court. Right. And he has this slightly tense relationship with the game because he kind of exploits the game to make money, but he also has a clear and abiding love for it. And that kind of hustling to get ahead and just make it is like a big part of the movie. And it feels like that is basically the re- that's like the thing that kind of squares the the circle for him is that, you know, everybody is just in this. I mean, he says in the first scene of the film that this is a business. It's a business first and foremost. And people are just in it and, you know, people are just sort of uh, trying to, to get ahead. And I guess one of the questions that you're asking yourself as you watch the film is like, what what is driving the, the main guy? Is it is it just total self-interest or is what's best for the game of basketball, you know, or what's best for his players, uh, the thing that's the most important to him? But the exact kind of uh, racial dynamics of the world behind the basketball court, I find it quite hard to comment on because I don't really know exactly 
what's going on back there but it seems like there's like a lot of black people you know who are also signing the deals rather than it being like something which is you know the corporate world is just controlled by white people though at the top they do appear to be all white yeah it's just like my i mean it was there was a famous south park episode which wasn't the nba it was about american football but it was a similar thing where like their take on it was like it was basically the sort of modern slavery where you got all these players who generate the income but they can't afford to like fly their families to the games they're playing at but at the same time the corporations are making a shit ton of money off their name effectively yeah the sort of people feed this machine but uh, it's very easy to be taken advantage of and your shelf life is only like five ten years maximum as a player yeah i think Maybe... I, yeah 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 i think there is i think there's a really similar dynamic in it and one of the interesting choices that the movie makes is to intercut the action with these like black and white interviews with what i believe are real uh nba players right they had these like kind of cutaway interviews with people talking about their experience of going into the nba and yeah i think it is a similar thing where it's like sink or swim you know and it's a very doggy dog world and you've just got to fight to make it onto the team and uh you're just fuel for this like massive you know machine um that doesn't really care about you and will happily sort of like eat you up and and spit you out so for um a significant part of the film that's part of what andre horn's character is trying to do is push back against the bosses by utilizing the abilities of the players and kind of rebalance a bit of that power which is you know, gives it a bit of that sort of underdog yeah, um, yeah. flavor to it i think in in a way the, the the structure of it reminded me a little bit of of logan lucky in that it ends up being about a guys with plans executing their clever plans right right you know and it has a lot of that satisfaction to it and i think that gives something of the, the motor to the walking and talking and, and wheeling and dealing which i did which i did honestly find a little bit impenetrable at times but in a way that you know i sort of appreciated the movie's authenticity i suppose it's yeah, like yeah. It doesn't have time for me the the style of it is very characteristic of like the current Soderbergh, no frills. He doesn't give a sh- you know yeah. shit now. I said his last movie was Logan Lucky, but I completely forgot about this film, Unsane, that he made. Who was who's in that? Claire Foy. Claire Foy, right? Which was like shot entirely on an iPhone, um, and then apparently can't be asked to be lugging those big cameras. Can't be fucked. He doesn't have time now. Old man, old man Soderbergh. Everything is stripped back, and this is kind of made in a similar spirit basically every shot is on some like quite wide angle lens and it just looks like we'll we'll get it we're gonna capture all this you know i won't have to do too many takes you just you, you guys just sit and chat um and there's something sort of pleasingly unvarnished about proceedings it's like it's just very competently put together which i guess is something you always feel with soderbergh you know he's got a good he handle a on things professional yeah he's a real professional he knows what he's doing and it's all going to be like kind of put together and he's not like getting in the way of the performances or um or of the script and uh yeah i just thought it was it was a very it's a very sharply written film it doesn't reach for high emotion or anything so i think it's hard to be like blown away by it but um it's a very well made movie and for all the fact that i was somewhat uh, nonplussed by some of the technicalities of like nba shop talk um, it was interesting worlds to sort of uh, be thrust into a little bit. And Andre Holland is uh, fantastic as the lead as well. I was going to say, because this is probably his first big role after Moonlight. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's just a very charming guy, and he's very good at this kind of uh, smooth-talking patter that he's required to do as his oh, character. And I think that, you know, that kind of uh, back-and-forth whip-crack stuff can uh, often sound a little false 
I mean, particularly with stalking, but just in general, it doesn't sure. always... No, humans know. actually talk like this. Humans don't actually talk like that. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think in, in this film, it does an unusually good job of selling it as a way that humans might talk if they were <laughs> just, you know, especially sharp-witted. Cool. So, yeah, I'd recommend it. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask punchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. Can you ever forgive me? This is directed by Maria Heller, who previously directed Diary of a Teenage Girl. And the screenplay is by Nicole Hoff... Holofcina? Holofcina? That's probably how you pronounce it. The director of Enough Said and other movies, writer and director of Enough Said, I should say, and a guy called Jeff Whitty, not sure what he's written, and based on the book of the same name, Can You Ever Give Me, by Lee Israel. And the film is about Lee Israel, played by Melissa McCarthy, set in 1991, where Lee Israel has just been fired from her sort of day job uh, as, a, as a biographer, that's where she's made her name. She's written fictional biographies of people, but never written anything from her own perspective, and she's quite an irascible, grumpy acerbic person who robs everyone off up the wrong way and she's facing mounting debts and you can't pay her rent and she through plot she stumbles upon the lucrative world of famous authors notes there's a whole market for like a note by Noel Coward or a letter from Dorothy Park or whatever and she starts forging these and makes money to pay her rent and embroiled in her plan is Richard E. Grant playing Jack Hawk a sort of loose drunk gay man about town of Manhattan who sort of like lives every minute as if it's his last and the two form a sort of strange quite sweet friendship and eventually he he becomes her sort of accomplice here's a clip of them meeting in a bar having met years previously going through Lee Israel it's Jack Hawk last time I saw you thank you we were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book party. Am I right? It's slowly flooding back to me. You're friends with um, Julia somewhere. Steinberg? Yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused there too. No, that's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. So I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. It's quite a slight film, but a very charming one. And it's full of nice touches. And it's elevated by two standout performances from its leads. And I enjoyed the sort of... It's a kind of character drama through a crime plot. But the crime element basically just gives it a bit of structure to hang the sort of character beats around. Because although it's quite a kind of fresh area for a movie to explore, the world of forging letters from authors. Never seen a movie about that before not your most conventional crime, it's quite uh, a low-stakes thing. You're not going to, you know, get the death sentence or go to jail for a long time if you're caught. And it's quite... It's not a victimless crime, but in terms of... People think they've got a nice letter. If they never found out, everyone would be happy, really. So it's kind of pleasingly, like, enough of a plot to give a bit of shape to things. But at the same time, it's never particularly tense. The whole movie's operating on, like, a sort of seven emotional register. It's very melancholic. And... This kind of feeds into the general mood of the film in that it depicts people on the margins of society who are basically trying to get by. And the whole visual style is quite muted browns. and There's a lot of sort of slow, bluesy jazz playing. It's set in New York and it just looks fucking miserable. It's freezing. It's the early 90s. They've cleaned it up a bit, but not enough. 
You know, it's got that sort of uh, people just trying to get by. And even her plot, it's not like she's going to make a fucking man. She's just trying to make her rent. It's like, it's hard to be particularly annoyed by her. She's not a villain, so to speak. And um, I thought one of the most successful things about it, and it's kind of a testament partly to the writing and also Melissa McCarthy's performance, is that Lee Ezrael is believably unpleasant, but you still want to spend time with her. Which I think is a very stock movie thing where... They have a character who's so sharp-witted and, like, everyone hates them. But you think, they'd probably be fucking awesome to hang out in real life. Why does everyone... They only hate them in a movie sense. Yeah, yeah. Whereas she is grumpy cat lady who is, like, just a bitch to people for no real reason. But then at the same time, it's laid with such vulnerability that you see this is basically a sort of defense mechanism. And it's just kind of like a a very subtle performance which will never win any awards because it's too good in a way. You know, there's no shouting in this movie. And Richard E. Grant is also brilliant. On one hand, its character is very much in his wheelhouse. Superficially, the character is a bit Wibnell-esque in that he's this sort of acid-tongue pisshead. Uh, but it's far more nuanced than that. And similar to McCarthy or the whole film in general, there's definitely a broader knockabout comedy version of this story. But the movie avoids all the pitfalls and cliches and is kind of richer for it. And there's just something very refreshing about this friendship of people in their 50s two gay leads and they don't really have this very strange relationship where they just basically spend most of the time bitching about other people they sort of they bond over their hatred of things i don't know i just it felt very fresh and the movie is full of little touches that elevate it there's like one scene where um richie Grant just helps her clean her house and it's just like incredibly touching i don't know one of the films is they spend five minutes someone just cleaning a flat but it was very compelling i enjoyed it uh, if there is a flaw, there's a tendency, particularly in the third act, where the sort of subtext is verbalized in a sort of, in case you weren't paying attention kind of way, which felt very unnecessary. And it is symptomatic of the fact that it's adapted from a memoir where you have to find ways to dramatize somebody's inner thoughts. And uh, in one instance, she basically kind of just like says what her character is. And the movie is already a slight metaphor of itself in that she is this guarded person who finds it easier to write as other people than herself. You know, you don't really need Melissa McCarthy to say that to get it. It's pretty obvious. Yeah. But yeah, it's like a tight 100-minute movie. Great central performances. Just like hanging out with these characters. And it just kind of got me. They're very authentic-feeling people. And they're quite... Uh, not tragic, but you just get such a sort of sense of who they are that where they end up is very moving. Great. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Get thee to a cinema. Excellent. And if you don't see it, I don't know if I could ever for- forgive you if you if you didn't 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 see the film. Nice. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end. Okay, another film that I just uh, sat on my sofa and watched because I'm lazy. Thank God. Uh, this new distribution model that we're living through velvet buzzsaw it's written and directed by dan gilroy it's his follow-up to nightcrawler and also stars jake gyllenhaal but this is a very uh well it's a sort of a similar kind of movie in that they're both exploring some sort of seedy underbelly world around la the surface and god knows what you'll find exactly it's got that kind of attitude to it but in this case uh rather than dealing with uh, television and how awful that is. Uh, he's looking at the world of art and how awful that is. Oh, my God. 
I don't know if you had ever thought about this about art, but had you ever suspected it might be full of like really superficial uh, people who who are who are really pretentious? Uh, Can we end? Well, (laughs) you should check out you should check out Velvet Buzzsaw, man, because that is exactly what's going on here. So everyone in this movie, all of their names sound like characters from those like murder mystery dinner parties. It's like if it, if this was themed after uh, like an, the art world or whatever, they would all be called this. So Jake Gyllenhaal's character is called Morph Vanderwalt, of course, and uh, Rene Russo's character is called Rodora Hayes, yes, <laughs> and shit like that, and so on and so forth. It's also got um, uh, John Malkovich in it as a kind of uh, artist. He's like a Jeff Koons style artist. He's called Piers. He just kind of bumbles about. It's also got Zawi Ashton. Uh, he was in Fresh Meat and has been in a few other things. She's been in movies as well now. And uh, Tony Collette as well, who plays um, uh, another um, arts uh, dealer, collector, uh, curator type called Gretchen. So Zawi Ashton's character, Josephina, um, who is an assistant, discovers a, a dead body um, in an apartment building. And uh, in that guy's apartment, there's all of these paintings, unsold paintings, and she takes them up and starts to prepare them for uh, distribution, and they're all hailed as masterpieces. Jake Gyllenhaal's Morph Vanderwalt character is an art critic who absolutely loves them and wants uh, wants to be seen as widely as possible. But the guy who died was a bit fucked up, and, no. the, pa- and the paintings are, are a bit fucked up. What? And spooky stuff starts to happen with Shit. the paintings. So the movie divides its time between um scenes of it's quite a sort of sprawling ensemble cast of of scenes of various art people interacting with each other and making these deals and kind of being like humorously like bitter and sort of catty towards each other and saying like embarrassing stuff about paintings and uh then uh, more like horror style scenes of shit happening with the with the paintings which are kind of like supernatural and evil yeah so it's not a very good it's not a very good film i wasn't quite sure exactly what it was going for at any point and it feels a bit like one of those movies reminded me a bit of mute that uh, duncan jones film where it feels like this is the kind of movie he would want to watch you know like dan gilroy has made the sort of film that he was really keen to see some kind of horror film that's like got supernatural elements and is set in this world but it's like that's the audience for it, I guess, is the filmmaker. Right. And I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure what the rest of us are supposed to be getting out of it. As a satire of the art world, it seems to just rely heavily on cliches. Uh, there's one bit in it where someone uh, looks at some garbage bags and mistakes them for art. Brilliant. Because he's like, oh, this is a masterpiece. And John Malkovich's character is like, that's not art. You know, it's like it's like jokes like that. That was in the square. That's the only thing about Ruben Austin's the square as well. Yeah, it kind of made me think of that as well, which I haven't seen, but just going by your review of it, it's like the world of modern art. You know, like they're really, really pretentious. They, they, there's no real difference between good or bad art. It's all just like made up nonsense, and you know, it doesn't speak of someone who really understands that world, but who just has an impression of it as being really stupid. I mean, maybe he is. Maybe Dan Gilroy knows that world intimately, and it's just you know, as far as he's concerned, it's exactly like this. But I feel like uh, it just it just plays on people's preconceptions about um, snooty, stupid um, art people. And they're all basically the same. I mean, like none of the characters are, are a kind of break in that pattern. Like they're they're all totally bought into this this uh, stupid universe and they all stay dumb shit to each other all the time. Some of which can be quite funny. There's a scene in which uh, Jake Gyllenhaal criticizes the color of his friend's casket as he's being buried. You know, and that kind of thing is sort of like amusing but in the end it doesn't sort of low deliver fruit. it's like it's very low hanging fruit exactly 
And the horror stuff by a similar token also feels a little bit tossed off. It's very heavy on kind of supernatural elements, which means that there's no kind of real rules to it. It's just like random fucking shit happens. annoying. So in a more kind of pure horror version of this story, there would be a bit early on where one of the characters was like, something is up with these paintings. I think they're killing people. Then other people would be like, oh no, I think you're, you know, crazy. And then uh, the protagonist would then be investigating it and then have some kind of showdown with the paintings at the end or whatever. But in this film, for some reason, that moment of, oh, I think the paintings are fucked up and they're killing people and we need to do something about it, only occurred half an hour before the end of the film. Yeah. Which I just found so strange because then it doesn't really give any time for, like, that section of the plot to get going. And that there, there is some plot about, like, the history of the artist, but it's all the most back of a cigarette packet scrawlings ever. It's like, he was so fucked up. Uh, he was an orphan. No. Uh, he, like, his dad abused him. Of course he uh, did. Yeah. But that, I know that sounds contradictory, but uh, his, like, foster father or something like that. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember the details of this. But it was just all a collection of, like, incredible cliches about, you know, what would make you fucked up? And so the actual sort of uh, death scenes themselves feel a little bit like ticking off a list. And it's like, I think you're also kind of meant to enjoy them because you're not meant to like any of the people. And so just it's very glib, you know? Yeah. And just found the whole thing a little silly and disposable. It's very silly. It's all very, very silly. But I would say this for it. Very colorful costumes and a lot of color in general. And Gilroy as enjoying directing this movie and i think that that shows and it's kind of it's a very visually splashy film and it's quite easy on the eyes and it's the ensemble cast is like a lot of talented actors and they're all putting in pretty solid work and they're quite fun to watch like go about their business particularly gyllenhaal who's uh continuing his transformation into an overactor in that latter part of his career which i'm very enjoying thoroughly and uh from the first half second in which his character appears you're like it's a performance he's doing a thing He's thought about it. He's going to set his shoulders like that. He's going to move his hands like that. He's got a whole voice. Do it. Fantastic. Go, go, Gyllenhaal, go. Someone's wound him up and he's doing his thing. Uh, so he's quite good fun. But I I would say not particularly great. Okay. Don't add to my watch list. Take it off your watch list if it's on there. And don't add it if it's not. When Sam Graf heard something that changed his life, what he listened to... When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's about it. That's about it. I think that's about it. I think that's about it, isn't it? That's about, about it. I've done it. Join yeah. us next week. I want to go see The Kid Who Would Be King. I hear it's good. I'd like to see that as well. Uh, Joe Cornish's new film about a million years after Attack the Block. Yeah. He's back. Cornwalls is back. Something I saw him say uh, in an interview, interview about the movie is how he wanted to make like a kid's movie, which is for kids first and foremost, rather than, or like, a, you know, not like a cho- not like a sort of young children's film, but that kind of like, because he feels like superhero movies are too much for everyone now. Yeah. So they're kind of kids' movies that are for adults. And he wanted to make like a kids' film that's for kids first and foremost. Well, mentally, I'm about seven, so perfect. That's perfect for me as well, given the, my, my, my mental and emotional maturity. Can't wait. So looking forward to that. I'll definitely see that. And until then, I would like you all to wish me... A speedy recovery. A speedy recovery 
from my coughing and spluttering. Yeah. Me especially, because I'm going to have to fucking deal with this in the edit. Yeah, it's going to be awful for you. Yeah. It's going to be filling your ears. Ugh. Ugh. Anyway, yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> See you then, guys. Bye. We got soup. I'm not getting any soup. Why don't you use a cup like any other human being? Why don't you wash up occasionally like any other human being? Dare you? How dare you? How dare you call me inhumane? I didn't call you inhumane. You merely imagined it. Calm down. Right, you fucker. I'm going to do the washing up. No, no you can't. It's impossible, I swear. Look into it. Listen to me, listen! There are things in there. There's a tea bag growing. You haven't slept in 60 hours. You're in no state to tackle it. Wait till the morning, we're going to get This is the morning. Stand aside. You don't understand. I think there may be something living in there. I think there may be something alive. What do you mean? A rat? It's possible. It's possible. Then the fucker will rule the day. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.